Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 3 John, continue our study this morning in this important little epistle. continue looking at verse 1, and I do want to take some time to further develop the idea of truth in this epistle. It's something that's very important to John. Um, It's a word that occurs uh, 25 times in the Gospel of John, nine times in 1 John, six times in 2 John, and five times in 3 John. And so there's a lot of truth uh, to talk about, and there is the truth to talk about in the context of what John is wanting us to focus on. And for me, it's incredibly important for us to make certain that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about the truth and why John is so concerned about it and why we too should also be concerned about it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our time together today. Thank you for the reminders that we've had already in word and song um, about the importance of who you are and and how you uh, comfort us and care for us and watch over us. We thank you, Lord, for your finished work. We thank you for your um, uh, sacrificial life that was given over to save the elect. We praise you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. We rejoice that we are known by you. May our hearts be renewed and refreshed this morning as we open your word, and may we come away with a greater sense and appreciation for who Jesus Christ is and all that he has done for us. We praise you in his name. Amen. Third John. Let's go ahead and just read the entire epistle. Verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be good, be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church." Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony um, is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we'll speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, the friends by name. Greet the friends by name. Well, last week we began to unpackage this important little epistle, and, and we're focusing on why it is they were being written. What was the concern that John had? Well, we know that 
during this time of church history, the Gnostics were gaining a lot of ground in the church. They were attacking the deity of Jesus Christ. They were attacking um, his finished work, his ability to be a savior. And of course, then you have at the center of this controversy the efficacy of the work of Jesus Christ and whether or not he was able to save, if faith in him could actually save. Of course, undermining that was going to do what? Destroy Christianity. And John, was, of course, was very concerned about that. And this error was coming into the church. Second John, of course, um, is more pointed in its presentation and argument regarding this particular matter, so much so that John would exhort believers not to even have these people in their homes or to greet them because of the significant nature of the error, the grievous nature, the great harm that that type of error presented to the church. And so for John, the truth is essential to um, a, a vibrant Christian life because the truth is tied to Jesus Christ. And so we find then that with Gaius here in, in verse 1, that John is, is commending him. He's talking about him because Gaius' testimony is tied to the truth, tied to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so in this, verse, this opening verse, this opening verse introduces us to the primary concern of the epistle, which is the truth. I misspoke when I said it's five times it's mentioned. It's mentioned six times here in 3 John, five times in 2 John. And so again, this issue of the truth is essential. It's mentioned four times in the first four verses. And so the word the truth is one of those words that today doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning. It doesn't seem to have the punch that it ought to have because we live in a very pluralistic culture and society where any definition of the truth is found offensive. People don't like it when you say to them, this is the truth. This is something that you ought to believe and must believe because it is the truth. The truth is essential to a life that has meaning has significance, not that we're looking for something temporal in that context, but certainly we want a life built upon the foundations of the truth. As we read this morning in John 14, 6, Christ himself would remind his disciples that he is the way and the truth, which he would anticipate that his disciples would understand. It would be unique, and indeed it is unique, that he would refer to himself in that manner. And so to John here writing, and being familiar with these um, uh, passages and these ideas wants to make certain that the church is not forgetting. Of course, within this story, we have an individual who is opposed to the truth, Diotrephes, who in his own way and according to his own dictates was precluding John's epistles from reaching this church. Gaius, um, just by way of context, uh, like Philemon, was apparently a wealthy individual within this region outside of Ephesus and had opened his church, his home, to host this particular church. Diotrephes was either, was either a part of that church or was in an adjacent church. And he was precluding the church from receiving the Gospel of John, most likely, and First and Second John probably as well, and Third John. And so he was precluding him from receiving these books and these correspondences 
uh, the church there and was depriving them of this information, most likely because Diotrephes had bought into the Gnostic heresy and didn't want the church to receive communications from anybody that proclaimed the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's significant. And so Diotrephes stands in stark contrast to Gaius, who is one who loves the truth, and that John loved him in the truth. I'm reminded this morning of what we read in the book of Isaiah as we consider what we're doing here this morning. I think it's a good reminder. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. My dad used to always say that Christianity is a thinking man's religion, and he's right about that. And his point was that the Bible does indeed require us to think. The Bible does require us to consider the statements of truth, these propositional statements that dictate and govern the manner in which everything works. At some point in time, everyone's going to come to the position and place where they're going to see that it indeed does contain the truth. You and I have been given the benefit of being able to know that now because the natural man receives not the things of God, they're foolishness to him. And so as a Christian, when we, when we contrast those two things, we are no longer like the man of the world because we can now think God's thoughts after him. We can understand the word of God. We can discern its meaning and understand its meaning and then make application in our own lives. This is something that John is very concerned about. Isaiah says in chapter 1, verse 18, come now, and I love this passage, come now and let us reason or think together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I like what Isaiah is doing here because he's bringing us to a place where we are being challenged to think, and that thinking is focused around the content of God's Word, the truth. The content of God's Word, as we'll find out in the Pillars of Faith Conference in a few weeks, speaks to us in its entirety to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It drives us to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points us to Christ. All the forms, the symbols, the rituals, the procedures, the processes, all of those things are pointing to a future greater sacrifice that is Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And importantly, in John's gospel, it captures the essence of what Isaiah says here in verse 18, come now, let us reason together, because it's in John's gospel that he presents to us who Jesus Christ is and why he is the Son of God and why he can be and is the Messiah, the Savior. And so for you and for me, and this is so very important, what I want you to understand and what you have to come to grips with in the context of what the Word of God says is that what it says about Jesus Christ is 100% true. You may reject it, but that does not make it untrue. It is always true. It is truth, truth. You see... That's incredibly important. And so, yes, you do have the right and you have indeed the obligation and ultimately the great privilege of telling other people about it. 
You get to tell them. You get to talk to them. You get to tell them who Jesus Christ is, and you get to communicate. You are indeed communicators of the truth. And not only do you communicate the truth, that is the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and that your merit and your work is of no account, but you get to also demonstrate the reality of the truth because you walk in the truth. The principle of walking in the Bible is very important because it speaks to the way of life, the manner in which a person lives. So what we then know from the Word of God is that the way a Christian lives is directly connected to who Jesus Christ is and that in our walk, we then reflect His life in our life. We spend a lot of time talking about Christian virtues. We can find them throughout Scripture. We just spent time in Colossians chapter 3 where we read a lot about Christian virtues in verse 12 of chapter 3. Those virtues are there and present because of who Jesus Christ is. Those virtues, as they are lived out, demonstrate that you are indeed walking in the truth, that you are no longer a natural man who cannot discern or understand these things. So what that means for us is that you are demonstrating them in real time. Why? Because of who Jesus Christ is. Now let me say this. The motivation for doing these things is because of what he has done for us. Isaiah reminds us in verse 18 that the idea of coming together and thinking about Jesus Christ, about thinking about the content of God's word, is because of who we are outside of him. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow, speaking to salvation, the purification Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And Isaiah's idea of consenting and obeying is something that comes out of a renewed heart that can and indeed wants to. We serve Jesus Christ out of gratitude. We live for him out of our love for him. Is that not the overarching theme of John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd? The idea of love, he loved us first. Therefore, we love him and also then the brethren in Christ. John makes that emphasis over and over and over again, as Joel has explained as he's been working through 1 John. And as we see in 2 John, the idea of keeping his commandments is connected to the love for Jesus Christ. Gaius is walking in the truth because he loves Jesus Christ and he's also extending hospitality to others who are proclaiming Christ. That's what's in reference here, these missionaries who had been sent out, and Gaius receives and helps and opens his home to them and, 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 and encourages them and funds them even in their missionary endeavors because they are in the truth with him. Now, for us, that is incredibly important. It's important because it demonstrates to you and to me what it is that we're doing and, and, and why we're doing it. Why are you here this morning? Why did you come? Because you had to? Because you're going to feel guilty if you didn't? Or you just, I've been doing it for years, I might as well do it again. No. I hope, that's, I hope none of those were the motivation. Because if they were, you're not here for the right reason. You're here because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And in being here, you're looking to do a multitude of things. 
to rejoice over your redemption, to do exactly what we're talking about in Isaiah 1.18, to revel in reasoning and coming together and thinking together and rejoicing together and saying to each other, I was a sinner. I was a wretched, vile, wicked sinner. And my sins were as scarlet. I've been made white as snow. Praise God, you and me, we're both redeemed in Christ. And that love for Jesus Christ binds us together in a way. Indeed, the Bible defines our love for each other as agape love. It's the only type of love, and this is the very same love that John uses to define his relationship with Gaius. It's the only way a Christian can love. Only Christians can demonstrate agape love. The world can demonstrate eros, erotic love, and phileo, brotherly love. They can do that all day long. Indeed, one of the largest cities in the United States is named what? Philadelphia. The city of what? Brotherly love. Just don't go out in the middle of the night because there is no brotherly love in Philadelphia. We took the family, I took the family there one year for a vacation. We wanted to go see Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and stuff, and we were staying in a hotel that was right near downtown. And we were getting ready to go out one night to kind of walk around. The guy at the counter sees us leaving the hotel. And he says, where are you going? Right, we're going to go walking around. He goes, no, you're not. You, you don't want to do that. It's not a safe city. There is no brotherly love, even though it's named brotherly love. So keep this in mind. You and I have this unique ability to love each other. It is that which then motivates us to serve each other sacrificially through the use of our spiritual gifts, which are the currency of grace that God has given us to, to go into the lives of other people and be an encouragement to them in the truth. John finds no greater joy than we find here in verse 1 than to hear that his spiritual children are living faithfully in the truth of the gospel. This is why it's so essential for you to understand what the gospel is and what it isn't. Today, most often what you're hearing in church is a, is a gospel message, a blending of the law and the gospel that incorporates some of Jesus but a lot of you. Your faithfulness, your consistency, your victory, your triumph, your success, faithing in your faithfulness, that's not the gospel at all. Some preachers will say, well, if it's not, then how do you preach? <laughs> well, you, you've got to get into the text. You, you've got to focus on Jesus Christ because that's what this is all about. This is what even Third John is ultimately about. Even though the name of Jesus Christ is not mentioned directly, there's a reference to the name, capital N, in the epistle, which is clearly in reference to Jesus Christ. But even here we find that John's little short letter to Gaius is driven by the gospel. He is concerned about the gospel. What's significant to me, too, is that the, the gospel also does something else for us. And the idea, too, that Isaiah would say that we need to come together and think, and the idea is to think about what? What, what am I thinking about? Well, we talked about the idea that I'm thinking about the gospel, how I've been saved, why I've been saved, and who saved me. But to also then be concerned, as is John, when the gospel is not presented correctly. When the gospel is not properly proclaimed. You and I ought to be concerned about that. Because the truth matters. The truth always matters. Without the truth, we have nothing. 
Without Jesus Christ, we have nothing. We're fools. So what we find then is that not only are we coming together in the context of the truth and what it means, but also coming together in the context of defending the truth. Gaius, in the face of, in essence, what is a bully? Diotrephes is a heavy-handed, hard-hearted, mean person. So much so that John intends to go and confront him personally, keeping in mind that John is probably in his 90s at this point in time. He didn't retire to, to Florida and, and, and collect seashells. Here he is, after having been in exile on the island of Patmos. You would think that after getting off the island of Patmos, where he's just pounding and literally crushing rocks all day with a sledgehammer, that's what it was. It was a rock mine. They made gravel. And they didn't have big, giant machines to crush rocks. They did it with people and hammers in the heat all day long. You would think that after that, and after having written the book of Revelation while in exile, he could say, I've done enough. I'm going to take it easy for a while. I'm going to let my skin heal from being dipped in tar. I'm going to take it easy for a little bit of time. He's probably coming out of Patmos malnourished because they didn't take care of prisoners back then. They didn't have TVs and, 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 and five squares and a workout room to spend time with like we have today in our, in our jails and prisons. It wasn't club fed that he was in. It wasn't even club med that he was in, even though he was in the Mediterranean. Life would have been very difficult. But here you, this is amazing to me. Here you have John at this age with that life. And he's concerned about the truth and people living in the truth. And he's going to go and he's going to confront this Diotrephes, the baby of Zeus, That's amazing. His parents must have been pretty arrogant. It reminds me of the doctor who treated James Garfield when he was shot. Do you know his first name was Doctor? He was Doctor Doctor. Unbelievable, but nonetheless. Be careful what you name your kids, right? I guess. <laughs> name them Doctor. But he is concerned... And he's so concerned that he wants to make certain that Gaius understands that he's concerned and that he loves him. I like that nexus too between the idea of his love for Gaius being based in the truth, in the gospel. There can be no greater delight to a pastor, as I've noted before, than to see those whom he is shepherding living in the gospel, living in the truth, and I don't mean that we live the gospel, you know, um, proclaim the gospel and if necessary use words. That's not what we believe here at Community Bible Church. We always use words. And you and I aren't called to live the gospel in that context. We are not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. It's the truth of Scripture. We're called to proclaim it. So what happens then is with regard to what John is saying, as we see here in 3 John... When he begins to communicate the idea of the truth, as he does here, we understand then that it takes the topic of truth out of the abstract and makes it intensely personal. 
it makes the truth intensely personal. Notice in verse 1, John, who is the elder here, he's that pastor. The word elder here is presbyteros, which is the, the word that we use to identify an elder or a pastor in a church. So he's writing to Gaius, who is beloved. John loves him, and he loves him in the truth. So you and I love each other. It's not just a personal affinity. It is a relationship that is based upon the truth. All right? So our, our, our connection to each other and with each other is predicated upon an understanding of the truth which is why Isaiah says, he's anticipating that you and I are going to want to revel together in that truth. That we're going to be rejoicing together in that truth. The gospel, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And this is the meaning of what John is doing here as well with Gaius. Whom I love in truth. Now, as I noted last Sunday, the grammatical structure of this passage is such that John, the word I here in this first verse, has a grammatical emphasis that is significant because John is saying that, that his, his love is not just a passing way thing, it's an agape love that is predicated upon and Holy Spirit driven in the gospel, in the truth. I think Christians have lost the sense of wonder and magnitude of the meaning of the gospel. And I think that's because we've been too gospel We have lost the distinction between the law and the gospel. We have forgotten that the law says do and the gospel says done. And instead, we've blended these things together and it's robbed us of the joy that we can have with each other and it certainly has deprived God of his glory. And it undermines sola fide, it undermines grace alone, it undermines Christ alone, it undermines Scripture alone. We need to guard that distinction zealously and jealously. It's interesting that the Bible describes God as a jealous God. These anthropomorphic terms are used to not communicate some failing on the part of God, but rather communicates an idea that you and I can grasp in our small minds. That God is jealous for the love of his people, and that love is predicated upon, as we will find and as we know from Scripture, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so for John, too, this is important. John is expressing his pastoral concern here. The job of a shepherd is to lead, feed, and protect the flock, and John shows just how to do that here, commending somebody that is indeed living in the truth. And here rejoicing over Gaius is holding on to the truth and acting like he loves the truth. That is, Jesus Christ is something that, as a pastor, he wants to commend and hold up as an example, bearing in mind that this letter would have been circulated Indeed, you and I have it here in Beloit, Ohio, 2,000 years later, to be reminded of this very thing. Just for clarity's sake, too, Gaius here is not the same Gaius that we find in other references in Scripture. There are four Gaiuses in the Bible. Gaius was a, a common name back in the day. It means rejoicing, one who rejoices. 
which is significant in light of what we're talking about here with Gaius, him rejoicing in the truth, him reveling in the truth, him standing in opposition to those who do not hold to the truth. And what I like about this is this also. You and I don't like to say, and we're reticent to say, they're not in the truth. Oh, how dare you? Don't do that. You're going to offend somebody. You're going to make them upset. Oh, how do you know they're not in the truth? Well, I have God's word. How did John know that Diotrephes wasn't in the truth? Because of what he was doing, how he was walking, how he was living, what he was saying. Oh, but pastor, come on, judge not lest you be judged. You know that after John 3.16, that's the most often quoted verse in the Bible? Judge not lest you be judged. It's, you know what's funny about that passage? Is that Jesus immediately judges. <laughs> it's like, judge not lest you be judged, but then he judges them. And of course, that doesn't mean any, that verse has nothing to do with what people are saying it means. Uh, Jesus Christ is saying that if you choose to impose your own standards of righteousness upon people, it is by that standard that you will be judged. How are you going to like that? It doesn't mean that you and I can't be discerners of the truth. We're called to do that all the time. And indeed, here in what, what we find in John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, is a call to be discerning about the truth. To say, wait a minute, that's wrong. That's not the truth. That's not what the Bible says. It's not even close. And so, for John, this idea of the truth is very, very critical. What's also interesting, too, is that the word love also occurs in this epistle, as it does in John's gospel, in the first John and second John alike. But it's, it's never a situation where love trumps truth. If I was going to title this message, I would call it Living and Loving in the Truth, and that's ultimately what we find here. And that love, then, is loving, uh, or rather, truth with love. Francis Schaeffer would write an article entitled that, Truth with Love, not Truth and Love, or Or Love. It's not either or. It's the two combined, and they work together. They're not exclusive to each other. So the loving thing to do is to do exactly what John's doing here, and that's to call error out when he sees it. And we need to be attentive to that principle. In John's writings, love is closely associated with truth, defined as the revelation of God, because God's revelation in Christ reveals God's love for those he came to save. Because of this, those whom Christ has saved are taught to love one another as God loves them. Indeed, that's what John says in 1 John 4.11. Turn there with me. The predicate for John's statement in verse 11 is found in verse 10. 1 John 4.10 John writes as follows, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's that truth. 
there's that core gospel message. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's the same principle that we find in 1 Corinthians 13 as it relates to the idea of love. It's the same principle that we find in Colossians 3.17, the unifying effect of love, as it encapsulates, or rather uh, 14, as it encapsulates all the virtues that we have. But love does not exclude, then, the presence of the truth, nor does it hide it. So oftentimes people will use love as a, as a shield or as a reason for not talking to people about the truth. So we get so nuanced in our presentation of the gospel that there is no gospel message. We don't say things that we ought to say that are connected to the truth, but we use this idea of love. We're going to love them into heaven. We're going to love the masses. Well, isn't the most loving thing I can tell my neighbor is that they're sinners in need of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be a very hateful thing to not tell your neighbor that they are sinners and need Jesus Christ? So the idea of love for John does not preclude a clear communication of a truth that's going to challenge people in their sin. As we've been reading in Revelation chapter 11, we understand that the world was tormented and is tormented by the gospel message. It's not a loving thing to stop tormenting. You keep on tormenting because it's via the proclamation of the gospel that God will save his people, right? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word, the proclamation of the word. And so John is concerned about that, and he's concerned about it too because absent its proclamation, there is no salvation, there is no regeneration that comes in accordance with God's word. And we also then find that error flourishes in the absence of truth. Indeed, I would say and submit to you that we've loved people so much that we're loving them straight into hell because we're not telling them about Jesus Christ. We're telling them about everything else, about social justice, fairness, equity, just embracing people where they are and who they are. The Bible never tells me to do that. It tells me to go and make disciples, proclaiming and teaching all that Jesus Christ has said and done, and to keep on doing that faithfully and consistently until the Lord returns, until he brings things to finality, which he will do, as we know from the book of Revelation. So here love is important. And we saw that also in 1 John 4, 1, uh, 1 John 4, 11. So here in verse 1 of 3 John, John's expression of love for Gaius refers to their shared faith in Christ as the basis of their relationship and his hope that it will continue undisrupted in light of the problems at hand. There are significant problems. There's a lot going on. John is very concerned about it. You can get the sense of that from 2 John. If you need reminded, go back and look. Look at verse 9 of 2 John, or verse 8. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So abiding in the truth is a sign of salvation. That's significant. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. 
Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. This issue of doing evil is also teased out when we consider the passage in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. In 3 John, the one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. John is never reticent to pull any punches. Look at 1 John 4. And this is something that he is also commending Gaius for because Gaius is standing in opposition to what Diotrephes is doing, demonstrating hospitality to those whom Gaius would reject, I mean, Diotrephes would reject from coming into the church, carrying these messages, if you will, from John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is significant. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. See if they're truthful. So anybody who says to you today it's not a loving thing to do to challenge people in their quote-unquote truth is, is wrong. The Bible clearly tells you to do that. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now it is already in the world. Verse 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. It's interesting. The world does not listen to the gospel because it torments them. Verse 6, but, that's my but in there, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. Look at this. At the end of verse 6, by this, look at this, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the discernment of what is right and wrong in the context of the message of the world and even other churches and religions is the idea of what they communicate being in the truth, which then would be an emphasis on the finished work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And nothing else. Otherwise, it's of the spirit of error. Error. The loving thing to do is to identify the distinction, which is exactly what John is doing here in 3 John. Here we find in 3 John, and there's a clear contrast intended by John between Gaius, whom he loves, he says, I, that's that emphasis there, and his identification of Diotrephes as a troublemaker and a denier of the truth, as we'll find out later. What we ultimately find then is John is applying the very principle that he's taught in 1 John 1, 6, which says what? 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. The truth. This is clearly what's happening here. Diotrephes was not living in a manner that demonstrated that he was living in the context of a believer in Jesus Christ. He was not living in the context of verse 6. He was doing exactly what it says. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Gaius was living, doing the truth. Diotrephes was not doing the truth. That is not walking in the truth like Gaius which we also find to be the case in verses 3 and 4 of 3 John. If you look, you'll see in 3 John 3, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That wasn't Gaius' own personal truth, but the truth of the gospel, living in it. That is how you are walking in truth. He defines what he means. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And so 3 John stands for the proposition that, that you and I, as we are proclaiming the truth, defending the truth, walking in the truth, ought to be able to and have an obligation indeed to identify those who are not. Because of what? Because of why? Because of the essential nature of the message. It's so very important. One of the most intriguing passages in all of Scripture, I think, is found in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 18. We have this amazing scene between between Jesus and Pilate. Verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth about himself, about who he is, about what he's doing, why he came. To go back in the fulfillment of Matthew 1.21, he came to save his people from their sins. Everyone who is of the truth, now notice how, how critical the issue of the truth is. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I, this, this statement right here, 38, Pilate said to him in his, this utter arrogance. The natural man receives not the things of God. This is a demonstration of that verse. Look what Pilate says. What is truth? What is truth? What a moment in history. So the issue of truth is so very critical when it comes to our, our position and our, our relationship to each other and within the church, and in regard to our, our mission as a church and what we're called to do. Our message is predicated upon the fact that we have the truth. And if we don't say that, 
then that is of the spirit of error, not the spirit of truth. So yes, you can and ought to make these types of proclamations. Now again, you're not walking down the street smacking people in the face with your Bible, but when opportunity presents itself, you are proclaiming the truth of God's Word, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And our relationship to each other is all based upon this truth, the truth. So you're allowed to have and to believe in the truth. Even if someone else says, well, that's not my truth. Well, that's too bad. Because your truth is going to take you straight to hell. But here's the truth of the gospel. Here's who Jesus Christ is, and this is why you need him. And this is who you are outside of him. This is what your future looks like. The message is centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole of Scripture is centered in the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, too, as we proclaim Him, we need to make certain that we're truly proclaiming Him. Remember, Paul would say that his preaching was an offense and stumbling block. Because why? Because he was proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. And people didn't like that. But that doesn't alter the fact that it is the truth. So what, we, what do we find here then, ultimately? And, and next week we're going to get into this idea of what John is talking about when he says in 3 John, walking in the truth. So this is important for us. So clearly for John, life and theology are inseparable. Because the truth as defined by God's Word, is about who Jesus Christ is, that He is the Son of God, that He is God. As we read this morning in John 14, one of the propositional truth statements that He makes is that He and the Father are one. That's a big deal. That's something that we don't let go of. So for John, life and theology are inseparable. This is why we see, as we did in Colossians and Philemon, a presentation of the indicative, that is the doctrine, which then moves to the imperative, which is the practice. A movement from theological observation to practical application. And that's what we see here, too, as John commends Gaius for his holding and walking in the truth against those who would do otherwise preserving the integrity and the impurity of the church, which is the bride of Christ. The principle of walking, as I said earlier, is found throughout Scripture. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to get into the idea of the meaning of that and looking at some other passages and considering again the, the, the picture of truth in Scripture and how John uses it to drive... Gaius and to praise him and to also distinguish him from Diotrephes and to warn the church. What we understand then is that this theology, which is what this is about, the truth is a theology, it's a thought of God, it's about God, is demonstrated then in a genuine spirituality 
Gaius is commended for his love of the brethren and for his hospitality. Even though these individuals are rejected and turned away by Diotrephes, Gaius steps up and takes care of business because of who he is in the truth, living out the reality of his conversion by his conduct and his behavior with others. And so for you this morning, I hope that you, like Pilate, are not saying what is truth. If you are saying that, then I would present to you the Word of God and say to you, turn to the truth, turn to Jesus Christ, look to Him in faith, faith alone, nothing more, nothing less. Look to Jesus Christ and come and dwell in the truth. Know the sweet fellowship of what it means to be in the truth. And I think our challenge as a church is to be mindful and to revel in that, to go back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, and to come together. Come, let us reason together. Let us think together. Let us ponder anew what our God has done and will continue to do. It's what we do. It's one of the great joys of being a Christian. It's one of the great joys of being together and bound together and a fellowship of saints who revel in the wonder of who Jesus Christ is and build up each other in the truth. That's what we do. And what a great privilege it is because there are millions and millions of people around the world who do not know the truth. Are you grateful that you know the truth? Do you rejoice in the fact that you know the truth? and that God has revealed it to you. You only know it because he told you. You only know it because he gave it to you. Otherwise, you're the guy in 1 Corinthians 2.14, and you'll just live that way forever. But God, Ephesians chapter 2, a child of wrath turned into a redeemed saint, a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this good reminder that we have in your word about the truth. Help us to love it, to revel in it. Help us to be mindful of the fact that the truth is connected to Jesus Christ and is about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he is doing and what he has done for us. May our hearts be refreshed and renewed this morning as we have pondered these things. And help us to be like Gaius, someone who is a lover of the truth and walking in the truth. Not because of our own goodness or our own desires in the context of merit, but simply because we love the Lord Jesus Christ because of all that he has done for us. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for loving us first as we've read this morning. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ.